0: Would you, at this time, uh, open up the Word of God to Matthew 14, verses 22 to 33? Matthew 14, verses 22 to 33. Let's all rise, and we will look at God's Word together. This is the Word of the Lord. But when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified and said, It is a ghost. And they cried out in fear. But immediately Jesus spoke to them, saying, Take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. And Peter had answered him, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. He said, Come. So Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came to Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid And beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. Jesus immediately reached out his hand and took hold of him, saying to him, O you of little faith, why did you doubt? And when they got into the boat, the wind ceased, and those in the boat worshipped him, saying, Truly, you are the Son of God. This is the reading of God's holy word. Thanks be to God. Uh, Today is our third week in our short series on faith. Uh, The first week we talked about faith as a gift. And this is one of the things that makes Christianity distinct from all other religions. You see, for the Christian, faith never has its beginning in the individual. Rather, it's God who first graciously reveals himself to us. You know, for a newborn to actually see his mother, all he has to do is open his eyes. But before all of that is even possible, it's actually the mother who first has to labor in bringing this child into the world. Only then, only after the mother gives birth, can the child finally open his eyes. Likewise is the case with faith. See, Scripture tells us that God has to first turn on the lights so that we can see, so that we can believe. Faith is a gift. Second, last week we explored faith as a confession. Faith is we believe with our hearts and we confess with our mouths. We confess that Jesus is Lord. Now, I know usually in the church, much is made of the first part. You have to believe in your heart. However, the second, confessing with your mouth is just as important. You see, verbal confession confirms what you believe, so much so that without it, without a verbal confession, your belief is suspect. Uh, There's a couple that I've been walking closely with. Uh, For the past year, doing premarital counseling and preparing for their marriage uh, a year in advance. And their wedding was going to be an elaborate one, with friends and family, relatives from all over. But, of course, COVID hit, and so they had to postpone their wedding for another year. When they made the decision to postpone their wedding, the question came up. Can they function like a married couple? Even though the ceremony wasn't going to take place, even though they weren't going to be wed together, the question was, can we act like a married couple? Can we live together? Can we vacation together? Can we share our finances together? You know, basically live like a married couple. And I told them, no. You can think you're married. You can believe that you're married. But until you actually exchange vows... Until you verbally confess, till death do us part, you're not married. I know it sounds very harsh, but until that verbal confession is made, it doesn't count. So we decided to do what normal people do during COVID. We had a Zoom wedding, it was simple, it was pure, it was beautiful. You know, I think weddings have become um, less about the vows and more about the experience. Well, this wedding was nothing like that. There was no fanfare, you know, um, nothing elaborate about it. It was just about the vows. The culmination was the vows, the verbal commitment to one another, what they felt, what they thought, what they believed in the presence of God and other witnesses, they verbally confessed. I do. You believe in your heart and you confess with your mouth. You know, one more thing uh, about faith as a confession. Uh, Not only does a verbal confession confirm what you believe, but it also affirms what you believe. In other words, making an outward confession is not only a, a way to express what you believe, but it's also a way to strengthen your inner resolve. You know, if you look in the history of the Christian church, uh, there are many accounts of martyrs, people who died for their faith, who right before they were executed appeared to look shaken, appeared to be filled with fate, uh, fear. And these accounts tell right before their execution when they're given the chance to either recant or to deny Jesus or to make a public confession in that fearful and shaken moment when they utter the words, Jesus is my Lord. That public confession made out of fear actually strengthens them, emboldens them. It fills them with conviction to face even death. It's as if hearing their own confession Reminded them of the reality that Jesus is king. And so, you know, the point is this. Faith as a confession. You know, if you are struggling with your, if you're struggling with your faith, allow your verbal confession to once again affirm your belief. You know, after hearing last week's message, you know, I, I've, I've been so moved this week just by saying the Apostles' Creed. I believe in God, the Father Almighty. I believe in His Son. I believe in the resurrection. I believe in the holy Christian church. I believe in the communion of saints. I believe in the forgiveness of sins. I believe in the resurrection of the body and the life everlasting. I believe these things. And it was once again a way to affirm and strengthen what I believe. Faith as a gift, faith as confession. For our third week, I want to explore another aspect of faith, and that's faith as trust. You know, too often I think uh, Christians, we, we separate or we divide faith and trust. Faith is just what you believe in, and trust is what you lean into. Well, you know, when the Bible talks about faith, it talks about faith and trust being synonymous. They're the same thing. And I think today's passage... Um, teaches us that if we get into today's text um, you know it's a well-known passage jesus goes up to a mountain because he is desperate to pray he sends his disciples ahead on a boat and he promises i'll meet you on the other side but soon after the disciples they begin to struggle steering the boat in the right direction because the winds and the waves were just too strong for them now jesus he sees this Remember, he's on a mountain while the disciples are in a boat trying to cross to the other side. He sees this. He knows this. He knows that his disciples are struggling. He waits and he waits. He waits until what the Bible calls the fourth night or the fourth watch of the night. It was around 3 to 6 a.m. in the morning, the early, early dawn. And about that time, Jesus, he walks on the water, and he finally appears to his disciples. Now, the disciples see Jesus, and they're not ecstatic. They're actually petrified. They think it's a ghost. And sensing their fears, Jesus, he utters these words, Take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. At this point, there are two possible choices, two things that the disciples can do. Either they can call out to Jesus, they can shout to Jesus saying, Jesus, what are you doing? Get here in this boat. You're going to sink. Or the second choice, they can jump out of their unstable boat, their directionless boat, and they can go to Jesus. Two options. The second is what Peter does. He shouts, If it is you, my Lord, command me to come to you. If it is you, tell me to come and I will come. You know, just a note about Peter. Uh, Peter is often the guy who um, thinks or who first acts without thinking, who first talks without reasoning. Peter is impulsive. Personally, I really don't like Peter. Every time I read of him in the Gospels, his personality is just so off-putting. He's the type of person that I just don't want to be friends with. He just acts without thinking, just talks. You know, I, I hope I don't run into him in heaven, but, you know, Peter is just so, so impulsive. But despite his impulsive behavior, Peter actually does the right thing here. He finds That walking on water is actually more stable, it's more secure than being in a boat with professional fishermen. So, Jesus utters one word. He says, come. Peter jumps out of the boat, and he heads towards Jesus. It wasn't a head fake. Peter wasn't just, you know, faking it. He wasn't like, oh, no. He really meant it. I'll come to you if you say come. Miraculously, Peter jumps out on the water and he's walking on water, headed towards Jesus. But when he starts to see the winds and the waves, he's struck with fear and he begins to sink. And that's when Jesus reaches out his hand. He picks up Peter immediately and he says, Oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? This is the story. You know, one of the things I find that's so amazing about Jesus is that Jesus, he ministers to the masses but he also disciples the individual. Just before this passage, Jesus fed 5,000 people. He performed this amazing, amazing miracle. It was public, but he doesn't stop there. After his public ministry, he immediately moves on to discipling his disciples. And that's what's going on in this story. Jesus is teaching his disciples actually two things. The first is this. He's teaching them who he is and second, on the basis of that, he's teaching them to trust him, who he is, and on the basis of that, to trust in him. So first, who is Jesus? When you read the story, you might be thinking, wow, this is a really cool miracle, but why does Jesus walk on water? Why is he walking on water? I mean, he could have snapped his fingers and appeared on the boat, or he could have from the mountaintop, you know, raised his hand in a, like, dramatic way, and actually calmed the waters, right? He could have been like uh, Mickey Mouse in Fantasia, you know, just like orchestrating the waters, you know, to calm it down. Why did he choose to walk on water? Well, if you look in the Old Testament, uh, there are these frequent references to God and water. I have a few up here. If you look in Psalm 77:19, it says this, your way was through the sea. Your path through the great waters. Yet your footprints were unseen. This is in reference to God. Or in Job 9.8. Speaking of God, he says this. He alone stretches out the heavens and treads on the waves of the sea. Again, it's this picture of God over the sea, walking on it. Or Genesis one, uh, 1 and 3. Well-known passage, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. It's in reference to water. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the water. You see, we find that in the Old Testament, God is frequently hovering over the waters. He's treading on the waters. He's, He's over the waters, walking on it without a single footprint. And the reason why the Old Testament talks of God over the waters in this way is because the Old Testament is actually giving this symbolic expression of saying that God is creator and ruler, not just over land, but over sea. In other words, the Bible is actually pointing to the most fearful and the most untamable thing on earth which is water, and the Bible is saying even that God is Lord over, even the unknown, even the great deep, that God has complete power and control over. I know that we, uh, you know, modern people, we tend to fantasize water. We enjoy water. We go near it. We vacation by it. We get in a boat and we go fishing on it. But we often forget that water is unforgiving. It is untamable. Water is uncontrollable. Despite our romance with the seas, water is something that we actually have no control over. We can build things to be earthquake-proof, but we can't build things to be tsunami-proof. Japan was actually an example of that recently. Earthquakes can kill thousands, but tsunamis can kill hundreds of thousands. You know, one of the most um, saddest stories I've heard uh, in recent years was uh, a story that happened um, during Hurricane Sandy in 2012. It was a mother with two young children living in Staten Island. And when Sandy hit, she was trying to get out of Staten Island uh, and into Brooklyn. As she was driving her Ford SUV, uh, she drove to a stoplight. And there, um, the waters just started coming over her. Her SUV stalled. And within minutes, her vehicle was just pounded wave after wave of angry unrelenting water. Now this woman, fearing that she might drown if she stayed there, she desperately gets out of the car, takes her two children out of their car seats, ages two and four, Brendan and Connor, and she tries to make it to higher ground. But before she can reach safety, she gets hit by a wave, and her two boys are torn from her arms. And like that, they disappear. Seeing her boys disappear in these unrelenting waters, she starts knocking on people's doors, neighbors all around. She says, help me. I've lost my boys. They're in the water somewhere. And all the neighbors, because of fear of water, they closed their doors and they left her out there searching for her children. This actually gained national headlines. Uh, There's actually a photo of the boys that um, became widely um, distributed. But, you know, if water swallows something up, most of the time it doesn't spit it back. If water swallows something up, it's either lost forever or if it does come back up, it never returns the same. You know, I wonder how many lost glasses and sunglasses there are in the ocean sea. Lost forever. See, the only one who actually had control over the waters, as Scripture tells us, is God. This unforgiving, unrelenting, untamable thing, it's God. God hovers over it. He controls it. He contains it. He has power over it. You see, in Matthew 14, Jesus walking on water is not a stunt, but it's a revelation. Jesus is teaching his disciples who he is. He's saying, I am God. You know, notice when Jesus calls out to his disciples when they are fearful, he says this, Take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. You know, a more literal translation is this, take heart, I am I am. Do you remember the words, I am? It's the same name that God gives to Moses when he says, God, what is your name? God says, I am who I am. Jesus here, as he's recalling that, as he's over the waters, he's saying, do not be afraid. Take heart. I am. That's why when Jesus gets back into the boat, the disciples, they don't respond with just amazement or bewilderment. They're not bothering Jesus, saying, Hey, Jesus, how did you do that? Teach us. No, their response is simply worship. They say, He is the Son of God. He is God. So first, what is Jesus doing? He's teaching His disciples who He is. Second, on the basis of who He is, He's teaching His disciples to trust in Him. Now, here's the choice that they're left with. Are you going to trust the son of a carpenter who's walking on water... Or are you going to trust this boat and the decades of experience the disciples had fishing throughout the night? Who are you going to trust? Now, you might say, obviously, it's the fishermen and their collective knowledge and their energy. Why would I trust some guy, some guru who's walking on water? I would rather trust this boat And the decades of experience these men have in controlling the seas, in getting through this storm. It seems obvious at first, but if you think about the situation, it's actually quite the opposite. Here's a man who just fed 5,000 people with five loaves of bread and two fish. Here's a man who just got done with a prayer session, a man who was just on his knees before his heavenly father. And now he is walking on water to show who he is, that he is creator and ruler and lord over all things. Versus twelve men struggling all throughout the night against the winds and the waves with no avail. You know, all the years of experience that they that they had as fishermen, and yet they have absolutely no control over their boat. They have no control over their lives. They have no control as to what direction they are headed. This is why Jesus waits until the fourth night or the fourth watch of the night. See, Jesus is timely and he's deliberate. After disciples have exhausted everything, he's teaching his disciples. Okay, so what is it are you going to trust? Are you going to trust this familiar boat that you've given your lives to, that you spent years and years on. You can taste the wind. You can sense where it's going. You can feel the environment, sure. But will you trust this after you've been directionless for the entire night or will you trust me? Jesus is teaching his disciples to trust him even in the most seemingly absurd and impossible situation. What does this mean for us? Well, let me first say this. I know that this story of Jesus walking on water uh, has often been allegorized. It's often been allegorized in attempts of making this really applicable to my situation. So what does it mean? Well, since none of us are actually going to walk on water, hopefully, um, we think this. Peter getting out of the boat represents Peter leaving his comfort zone. And Peter stepping on water... Walking on water represents Peter taking Jesus at his word and trusting in him. And so, you know, Christians over the years start to think okay, so what is my comfort zone? How do I step out into the water? What is Jesus telling me to do? What's my comfort zone? And where is Jesus calling me to step into? Maybe you're the uh, non social type and, you know, your church life is not that active. And so you're thinking, you know what? I should step out of my comfort zone, and I should join a community group. You know, even though it makes me feel uncomfortable, I really think I should walk on water and take a leap of faith. But, unlike Peter, when I see winds, when I see the waves, when things get difficult, when life gets busy, when I'm tempted, or when I'm turned off by people, I shouldn't be afraid, and I shouldn't lose faith. I think this is the normal way in which this passage has been applied thinking, okay, so what is my comfort zone? How do I step out of it? Now, I'm not saying that this is wrong. I think applying the word of God in in your life uh, in specific ways is noble and uh, God-honoring. However, I think if you immediately jump to applying this story, you miss the entire point. What am I trying to say? Well, before you put this story into your allegorical machine, I want you to take the story at face value first. What is Peter actually doing? He's getting out of a boat and he's stepping into water. That's what Peter's actually doing. Okay. Friends, Peter isn't leaving his comfort zone into a non-comfort zone. Peter's actually moving from a life to death situation. Okay. He's moving from a boat into the water in the middle of the Sea of Galilee. See, what Jesus is doing here is he isn't simply teaching, hey, trust me with your comfort zones. He's actually saying, trust me with your life. Okay, And Jesus can ultimately command this. He can ultimately command trust of this kind, of this degree, because he is Lord, You see, what God is, what Jesus is doing here is this. He's calling Peter to trust him by getting out of a boat and into water. And I know that is ludicrous. But very soon, Jesus is going to call the whole world to let go of any merit, any boasting, any hint of morality, any wisdom that they have. Jesus is going to call the entire world to let go of that and to grasp the cross. Just as ludicrous as it is for Peter to get out of a boat and into the water, so also Jesus is going to call the entire world, you and I, to let go of anything that we hold on to and hold on to The cross. In other words, Jesus, through this passage, is calling you and I to forsake what we know, to forsake what we hold to be valuable, to forsake the things that we deem worthy, to forsake the things that we consider to be the essence of life, our security, our safety. And He's calling us to forsake our boats and to trust him as Savior and Lord. You know, on the surface, I know it seems like Peter is going from a situation of life and security to a situation of death and vulnerability. But in actuality, what Jesus is doing is he's flipping it. Peter isn't going from life, security, to death, and vulnerability no by walking to jesus it's actually the opposite peter is going from death to life he is moving from fear to faith from doubt to trust from effort to worship that's the movement from the boat to the water from effort to worship from fear to faith from doubt to to trust. And this is the scenario. Will you trust the Son of God steadily walking on the water that He created? Or will you trust in professional fishermen in a boat unable to steer it because of the powerful winds and the waves? Friends, I don't know what it is that you are trusting in this morning. Is it your years of experience? Is it the knowledge that you've amassed? Is it the wealth that you have created? Is it the friends and the families that you have near you? What is it that you are trusting in this morning? You see, I often find that Christians struggle when asked, do you believe in God? Do you have faith in Jesus? Christians say yes. But when asked the question, do you trust in Jesus, Christians often struggle to answer this question. See, what Jesus is doing here is he's bridging this gap. To have faith in Jesus means that you trust in him. Not just you trust in him for your future, for your relationships, for your career, but you trust in him with your life. Will you trust in the Son of God walking steadily on the waters that he created? Or will you trust in professional fishermen in a boat, rudderless, directionless, because they have absolutely no control? That's the call to us this morning. You know, I know in this pressing and trying time, we're trying to hold on to anything that will anchor us. We're trying to hold on to any good news or any hope that will stop us from moving to and fro because of the winds and the waves. Well, this morning, the call is not to anchor yourself in your boat, but the call is to walk from death to life, to go to Christ from fear to faith, from doubt to trust, from your efforts and your experience to worship and trust. Join me in prayer at this time.